You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. A rise in short-term yields will be bad news for bad vodka. Welcome to the knock-on effect. <laughs> Sorry. It's fine. It's fine. It's good. I like the laugh. All right, here we go. Now, before we start the main part of today's show, we do have a special announcement real vision has recently opened the doors to its premium research service macro insiders and macro insiders is co-written by real vision co-founder ral pal as well as julian brigden now macro insiders brings readers opportunities in global macro investing and they're offering a very special deal right now yeah the, these guys both of them uh you know familiar to real vision viewers and, and probably to listeners of uh adventures in finance um, they're, they're offering a special deal, and to learn more, you can go to realvision.com slash macroinsiders2018. Not 1994. Remember, it's the current year. Mac- this year. realvision.com slash macroinsiders2018. And if you want to go for a you know, blast from the past, maybe try Macro Insiders 2017. Yes, yeah, see what you find. Or, yeah. wow, what if you could go to Macro Insiders 2023 and get a view in the future? Okay, don't don't go to any of those. Yeah, links. don't do that. You probably won't get anywhere. But uh, so in today's show, you know, this is the show where we start with the thing you know and end up in a strange place. Justine, by the way, is in is in a strange place. You're you're with us from from Seattle. Yes, the great green state. Actually, I'm not sure what the line is or tagline for Seattle is, but yes, I'm in Seattle um, on a mini vacation. Okay, and and yet and yet still hard at hard at pod. So that's uh, yes. Admirable. So, yeah, yeah we're going to talk all about how a rise in short-term yields could be bad for. And I'm I'm in uh, good old New York, by the way. Uh, we're going to talk about how a rise in short-term yields could be bad for for the cheapest cheapest vodkas in the uh, I don't know supermarket liquor store. Depends what state the, the different liquor laws. And then after that, we actually have a, a really fun segment where Justine is looking at a way that the USDA is trying to crack down on high-frequency traders. Yes, it's an exciting one. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, don't judge it by her tone. Uh, but, but let's get right into it. So start with starting as always here with the thing, you know, so short-term interest rates have just been, been shooting up, uh, over the past two years, the U S two-year treasury note yield has more than tripled. Um, and it's largely due to what's going on in the fed. The federal reserve is raising rates, uh, and the rates that are most you know, basically what they deal in is the equivalent of super short-term rates. That's what they target. And so the biggest effect is on on what we call the short end of the curve. In other words, bonds that mature uh, 
in, in, in the near future. And that affects everything from, I mean, it does affect things on the longer end of the curve. So it affects mortgage rates eventually. It affects auto loans. It affects pretty much everything. But the tools that the Fed is using is uh, the short term. I mean, a, a lot of what they used to do was target the overnight uh, rates, the overnight lending rates um, or the Fed funds rate. So uh, my mission is to convince you that if short term rates rise, bad vodka will be in trouble. And to, and bad bad vodka is the the cheap stuff you find in grocery stores. So maybe to some people it's good vodka. I know, well, but uh, it's it, it's true because you know this maybe it is better and it's just a it's it's a real good bargain. You know that that's, that's uh, yes, right. So that could be. Uh, so it all depends on your definition of bad. But the stuff that usually tastes not so good. Yeah, they're, they're, it generally maps. You know, vodka. I think vodka <laughs> of like in the low end, vodka really maps closely. In the high end, it's just like complete BS. But uh, mm. Like a hundred dollar vodka versus two hundred. Anyway, 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 anyway. Anyway, so you're going to take us from raising rates to bad vodka. Yes. So, um, so we'll, we'll start with what's going on already, and, and specifically rising short term rates. So, the two year yield in the past, uh, well, two years has more than <laughs> tripled, uh, rising from zero point seven percent. Today, as we're recording this, it sits around two point six percent. That means that if you lend uh, lend a hundred dollars to the U.S. US government for a two year period, you'll get back about $102.60. A lot of the reason the yields have been rising is that the Federal Reserve has been easing up on their policy, targeting higher short-term rates. You know, the the Fed targets... That's a little confusing. They've been... Um, not they're not easing because easing sounds like they're lowering rates, um, but they've been um, reining in um, some of the stimulus measures that they provided. Um, and so therefore raising rates. Yeah, exactly. To be to be pedantic. Yeah, well, well, I see it's it's a bit of a uh, I don't want to get into the rabbit hole this early, but it's a bit of opinion, actually, because the question is, at what level? Like, where should rates be if the Fed wasn't involved? What level actually is stimulative? So there are mm. arguments that the Fed's current rates are not stimulative. Uh, ah. that, that's sort of a an out there dovish. Uh, that is that is a very I, I would argue that that is a very out there um, statement, because right now that the Fed has and now to, to diverge a little bit, the Fed has a huge balance sheet that they're um, like in some ways trying to wind down. Um, and so to say that they're not being stimulative um would be quite surprising to me. Yeah, and it's actually not just the Fed that's been the cause of of rising short-term rates. I mean, the overall economy has been improving, uh, and and the labor market has gotten tighter, and we've seen inflation pick up a a, a bit, you know, not a ton, but certainly inflation expectations have risen a bit. So, you know, people are figuring, if I'm going to let the government have my money for two years, I do want a little more more compensation. Um, But... But now I want to get a little more granular when we talk about yields, because while short-term rates have been rising, long-term rates have only been creeping higher. So at the beginning of 2014, the 10-year yield was nearly 3% higher than the two-year yield, and now it's like uh, 0.3% higher. Uh, the, the 10-year yield has risen a bit in, in, in the past, in, on Monday. So, but it's so so again. So the 10-year yield is only 0.3% higher than the two-year yield, and I'll take a bit of a bit of a detour to explain the way these rate differentials work. So you might think, well, 10-year yield, 2-year yield, you know, it's really the same thing. If I buy a 2-year bond, it matures, I go out and buy another 2-year bond, matures, I go out and buy another 2-year bond. And since the yields are priced on a um, annual basis, in other words, the 
annual yield so that you can compare them accurately. It might be weird that the 10-year bond is higher than the 2-year bond uh, yield, that is, at all. But generally, you know, the, the longer you keep, first of all, the longer you keep your money anywhere, the, the more compensation you have because the more other things you could do with it. Like after two years, you might not want to buy another bond. So, of course, with a 10-year bond, you could sell it to someone else, but but that other person has to take on the risk. And then there's also the risk that inflation rises dramatically, that, you know, five years from now, rates will be way, way, way higher. And if you bought a two-year bond, you're, you're, you have the option to go out and buy a new bond with a fresh yield. If you buy a 10-year bond, you're kind of locked into that option and, and the price of the bond will will fall. So Right. So yeah. it really comes down to risk. So it's how much risk are you taking on? Are you taking on risk for multiple years or is it um, just for a shorter period of time? So that's that's really what investors are looking to be compensated for. Yeah, exactly. Because the, because we know more about the near future than about the distant future. So, so you know, that... that that conversation usually comes in the form of higher yields. So anyway, the, the, the on average, the 10-year yield hasn't been like crazy higher than the two-year yield. It's been about 1% higher uh, over the past 40 years. But recently, that spread has come in dramatically, as, as I mentioned. This is, this is called yield curve flattening. Uh, because if you imagine a curve that you know plots all the different maturities against their yields, then Normally, it like kind of is a nice upward slope, like the beginning of a roller coaster, but or the the middle of a roller. I don't know how you like your roller coasters, but but it kind of yeah. I think you get the point, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, well, but it, and it, and it's worth noting that a lot of this is happening because the Fed impacts short term rates. So the Fed really, as the Fed raises rates, they're really looking at the short end of the yield curve. So they're really doing the Fed funds rate, um, which is the ultra short term rates, um, rather than the 30 year mortgages or the 30 year mm. treasury bonds or anything else. Right. Uh, so, so, you know, that should lead to a, a, a steeper yield curve. And as the Fed rolls back that policy, it should you, you'll, you lead the yield curve to flatten, he tried to say. So it should, y- it should yield a flatter yield it, curve. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and, you know, you've probably heard about the flattening yield curve before because it's just been, for some reason, it's like it used to be that that the yield curve was was would play at undercover venues and you had to know somebody to get in, and now they're like playing Madison Square Garden. Like everyone is talking about the yield curve now because it's a potential indicator of recession. Yeah, actually, um, an inverted yield curve is associated with most of the recessions that we've had um, since World War II. I think there's one recession that was not correlated with an inverted yield curve. But um, we did have uh, basically what happened was short term rates went above long term rates. And that preceded most of the recessions that we've had over the past 50 years, um, which is a pretty significant um, factor. I mean, it's something that that a lot of investors are are looking out for. So that's probably why it's been top of mind in a lot of media reports. Uh, that's why it's been playing at Madison Square Garden. Yeah, and the causality is kind of hard to figure out, right? Because it makes sense that the yield curve would invert when investors were getting concerned. Uh, part, part because you know it, it is weird to get a higher yield on short term bonds than a long term bond. So one of the reasons you might do that is because you think the long term looks pretty bad. So actually, instead of being a risk that you can invest, you know, this is how much you're going to get for your money over the next 10 years, that stability might actually hold some hold some appeal. Um, in other words, you, you don't think you're going to get a lot of good options 
you know, five years from now. So you actually want to hold things for the long term. So it, it could indicate a certain bearishness on the part of investors. It could also, as we said, it's very uh, driven by the Fed. So perhaps it's because recessions, you know, maybe the, the Fed raising rates could be a cause of recession. And in that case, it would make sense that the Fed raising rates both cause a recession and causes short-term yields to rise. Um, so, so you know, there are different different theories about this, but it's, it is sort of famous as one of the most bulletproof indicators. So just to follow along with the progress here, I'm, I'm, I promise we're going to get to uh, cheap vodka. So far, hmm. we've talked about rising rates and a flattening yield curve because yield curves often flatten because short-term rates rise. It's at least what's happening now. Uh, and, and now next, we're, we're going to talk about recession. You excited? I'm excited for the recession. I, I um, well, not an actual recession, but I always love it when we go to dark places. Oh, this one is going to get. I mean, this is an abyss of of darkness. This is a good darkness. one. So the, you know, if we do get that recession, that a yield curve inversion, which again has not happened, but if it does happen, it would predict a recession and be reasonable to expect a recession would be coming. If that recession did come, I want to kind of reframe the way. We think about it because investors are kind of obsessed with the recession because it's, I mean, you can lose in a week what you made in, in five years. So you know, it, it's really important to know when, when the recession is coming. It's all about market timing. Yeah. So from a timing perspective, like that's the ultimate in timing because also stocks fall more quickly than they rise. So it's more important to know about recessions than rapid expansions. And anyway. They, yeah. they take the elevator down and the stairs up. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, My favorite saying. Yeah. So, so, but, but beyond the markets, I mean, it's worth thinking about what a recession really is. Like, it's a time when economic output slows. It's a time when I used to be able to, you know, I used to have a job. Now I got fired. I can't find a new job and the unemployment rate rises. So it has real human consequences for a lot of different people. Yeah. I mean, I would say the last recession we had was not something that many people fondly remember. Um, and it's I mean, it even has a huge impact on job prospects, on people who are graduating, which is what I was happened to me. Um, and, and so, yeah, it, it definitely puts a damper on a lot of people's lives for many, many, many years to come. Yeah. And so it. it a, a damper is actually putting it lightly when we move on to the next topic, because last week, the medical journal BMJ, I was just, you know, browsing through BMJ as I do every week or month or quarter or however, however often it comes out. What is what is BMJ? Uh, it used to stand for British Medical Journal, but now it's just it's oh. like MTV, you know, it's just. The, oh, it's just that's what it is. I once had an MTV interview with MTV and I was like, do you guys still stand for music television? I did not get the job. Um, so anyway, oh. they published a study called Mortality Due to Cirrhosis and Liver Cancer in the United States, 1999 to 2016. And what they found is it uh, uh, from just a public health perspective, it's actually pretty shocking that uh, that U.S. deaths from cirrhosis have increased by 65% since 1999. And, you know, sometimes when I hear these stats, it's like, oh, good, people are, like, not dying of other things, and maybe they're dying of cirrhosis. No, like, the largest increase came in the 25 to 34 age group uh, in terms of the mortality. And so the authors are both doctors, Elliot Tapper and Nihar Parikh, and they wrote in the report, there was an inflection point at 2009 where cirrhosis-related mortality increased statistically significantly. And here's where they draw on that, continuing to read. 
Given that the worsening trends began after 2008, a year marked by the global financial crisis and a subsequent economic recession in the USA, a differential economic impact on specific states may explain some of the results. Since increases in mortality were greatest for young men, these data may dovetail with trends in alcohol misuse, established to predominantly affect younger men. Becoming unemployed is linked with alcohol misuse in young men, but not older people or women. Right. So you have a huge spike in unemployment during a recession. And yeah, not surprisingly, I guess a lot of people turn to drinking, specifically men. Yeah. So what's interesting is some people turn to like drinking, drinking, like let's drink. And but but most people turn away from alcohol since it's considered a luxury. That's at least my uh, guess about why I don't want to, you know, create a causality here. But there's a paper published earlier this year in Social Science and Medicine that was called "The Impact of the Great Recession on Health-Related Risk Factors, Behavior, and Outcomes in England," uh, finding that uh, the recession is associated with a decrease in the number of cigarettes smoked, a mm. decrease in fruit intake, uh, and a fruit fruit. You know, maybe maybe it's like a little. Luxury good, yeah. I guess. It's more expensive. Okay. And, and But they also found a reduction in alcohol intake. Now, they also found an increase in obesity, diabetes, uh, increase in mental health problems, uh, mixed bag for sure. But hmm. So then the question is, is it a luxury item? You know, I'm guessing that the more expensive alcohols were less used, whereas the cheaper alcohols were maybe took, picked up the slack in some ways. Yeah, um, yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's maybe that people aren't enjoying a bottle of wine with dinner, but maybe they're, right. you know, quietly, um, I mean, frankly, poisoning themselves <laughs> to death. Like, let's not, you know, beat around the bush here. Uh, but I thought you said that this would be bad for bad vodka. So it's bad in the sense that um, people aren't going to drink as much bad vodka? Well, yeah, no. It's actually bad in the sense that people might drink too much bad vodka because... And this is where where the the X factor comes in is that authorities could respond. Um, this is what happened in Scotland. Yeah, so Scotland instituted a floor of fifty pence per, you know, basically alcoholic drink, a, a unit of of alcohol, uh, as a way to respond to to you know rampant drinking problems. Fifty pence is a half of a. Oh my goodness, I don't even know. Oh, no, <laughs> it's a half of a pound. Okay, yeah. So, so it, it, it correlates to cents in, in American. It it, um, it does. It, you know, they're they're worth a little more than uh, cents. So, okay, it, gotcha. It's like something like seventy, eighty. So cents. that's that's quite a significant tax in a way to implement. Yeah, it it's really not a. I mean, I, my understanding is that Scotland wasn't able to institute a tax, so they did this instead, uh, because. And it was actually arguably good for some beverage makers, but it was bad for specific beverages. So, you know, it's not good for cheap vodka because it, you know, cheap vodka, it's, its main benefit is that it's cheap. So it raises the price to to that 50 pence level. Uh. The, the biggest uh, hit came to what's called strong cider, um, which was. Oh, yeah, I'm familiar yeah, so but this is not like uh, probably the cider you're familiar with up in up in Seattle. So this this was this is like a two liter bottle um, at seven point five alcohol by volume. I think it's called Frosty Jacks is one popular brand. So the whole bottle has fourteen units of alcohol, which is more than the weekly you know recommended limit for an adult. And you could buy the whole thing for for two pounds and fifty pence. 
That's a pretty crazy price. I mean, I also like thinking of alcohol in units, too. That's not ever how I <laughs> I consume my alcohol. I'll have five units today. No, but you, you said um, I, I had, you know, three drinks today, maybe. You know, so, beer, so f- a shot, and a glass of wine. So would that be equivalent to 14 shots? Yes. Wow, for two... I mean, I'm translating into... Uh, it's like, you American know, who knows, dollars. Three, so it'd be like three bucks, bucks or something. Yeah, something like that. uh, um, that's insane. Yeah. And there were, you know, these horrible news stories of teenagers dying and, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I, I don't want to like have an opinion on this. I, I don't know. Um, but perhaps, you know, these super cheap drinks, which were super common, is part of the reason that, you know, Scotland had some problems with public disorder, uh, their alcohol sales. This is just a crazy step. So, in 2016, 10.5 liters of pure alcohol were sold per adult in Scotland every week. So that's 20.2 uh, units of, of alcohol. So tw- we, in the U.S., we might say 20.2 drinks. Now, the... Per, per person per week? Per person per week. So the U.K. chief medical officers, th- their guidelines is that men and women should not drink more than 14 units a week on a regular basis. So enough alcohol was sold in Scotland for so just, every just, adult to exceed the weekly guideline by almost 50% every week of the year. Isn't that incredible? Wow. So so just drinking one Frosty Jacks is equal to the amount that you should have for a week. Yeah. Well, not should have. That's, that's like the upper... I mean, 14 drinks a week is kind of a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. But wow. I, I don't think you'd enjoy Frosty Jacks, by the way. We've talked a bit about your beverage preferences in the past. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a big drinker. I do like cider, though. I, I think that that it has a little bit of a sweeter taste, um, especially as a super taster. Um, I prefer the more sweet to the bitter. Um, but yeah, definitely cheap vodka is not on my not on my list of things to drink. You say as a super taster the way I say as a CFA charter holder is kind of. Funny. <laughs> uh, so, I wear it as a bad badge of pride. Yeah, absolutely. So so Scotland is. The first country to do a, a country-wide minimum uh, alcohol pricing ban. In Canada, several provinces have minimum prices, and there's some kind of minimum pricing in a bunch of countries in Europe, Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, Kyrgyzstan, and Moldova at last count. Uh, meanwhile, in Australia, the Northern Territory recently implemented a floor for alcoholic drinks. It's a cool name for a province, by the way, or I guess it's actually a territory, the Northern Territory. Mm. And, you know, th- this stuff works. Like, I've read a couple studies, not shocking, that... It does cut down on problem drinking uh, and, and, you know, alcohol-related issues, which is, again, humans respond to incentives. So, but in, right. getting back... But I mean, yeah. oh, but, but I mean, do people just go to something else? So maybe I wonder if, you know, do cigarettes increase in usage or, um, I don't know, some other drug? Um, maybe people go turn to more coffee or some, some alternative... <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I you, just you, wonder you, if there are other effects. You can drink yourself into oblivion. It's hard to, like, smoke yourself into oblivion. Or, like, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I drink a lot of caffeine, but I don't think it's like if, if coffee became more expensive, I'd be like, I guess I'll just be drunk all day. <laughs> like, I'm not sure it well, serves the same role. The, the other thing is that I, I can't believe it doesn't create some sort of black market. Um, if if there is some sort of increase in, in alcohol prices, people are going to get their alcohol somehow, some way. Yeah, I mean, the thing, though, is that it's not prohibition. So it's like you can have a – like it, during during prohibition, you could buy alcohol in the U.S., but it was expensive and it sucked. This is like you just have to pay more than 50 pence per shot. So, it, yeah. I mean, it's – 
you know, I, I don't, I don't, again, I don't want to make a policy judgment, but like it, it seems fair in that you know, we can, as a society can say, you know, people shouldn't be able to get drunk this cheaply. And, and there's no real, real way for it to go underground because the liquor stores are just selling it. They're just selling it for, you know, really very slightly more than they were selling it for before. Right. So if we were to have some sort of recession and people were to drink more and alcohol consumption were to increase, uh, you're making the case that basically we might have more regulations on the books in terms of prices for, for alcohol and setting minimum prices. Yeah. I mean, getting back to the same paper, the, these two uh, doctors kind of kind of recommended it. They said that uh, the role of state level policy instruments such as increased tax on alcohol deserve attention. Forthcoming data from Scotland will prove instructive, having mandated for alcoholic beverages a minimum of 50 pence per unit price. The impact uh, of this program on Scottish public health should be eagerly awaited by American policymakers. Um, so, so yes, I mean, it's it's in the U.S. you'd probably see greater taxes rather than I, I really, really, really doubt in the real world that we'd had a have a federal minimum alcohol price. Uh, but, but you know, it's, it's possible that in some shape or form, the cheapest uh, alcohol would be cracked down on and and uh, wouldn't be as popular. Yeah. Well, and I, I could imagine that, um, I don't I mean, like, yeah, if people lose their jobs, they're going to drink anyway if there's nothing else to do. But um, I don't see regulation as too far off. I mean, there is the case, you know, this is the U.S., um, Freedom to drink is almost one of the most important things um, mm. as as what we have on the Constitution. And so that's where I, it would be very difficult to and with all the lobbyists and everything else, it would be difficult to impose a, a tax or a, any sort of additional charges there. But if it becomes a major health problem, yeah, I, I see this as something that could potentially happen. Yeah, not just a health problem, but, you know, something that uh, that becomes more open in society like like opioid addiction is a huge problem that policymakers frankly have done basically zero about and but i think part of the reason why is because it's such a quiet problem that like this is a drug where people um you know do damaging themselves in their own homes and they're not like going on the streets and, and rioting like it it's it's a downer not an upper Alcohol right. technically is a depressant as well, but part of the reason this, you know, got traction in Scotland is that there were a lot of public disturbances. Like people didn't feel safe walking the streets at night when there were just these hordes of super drunk people. So it that's really frightening. Yeah. Wow, you, you really did take us to a dark place this week. I think the darker place was like the uh, cirrhosis, personally. But um, so so before we go though. Uh, I'm I'm really excited for this next segment. Uh, I, I think we're oh, calling. Oh wait, it... before we before we, I, I did want to bring it back to the yield curve quickly. Oh, good. Um, yeah. So you know, bringing bringing our cheap vodka back the other way around to the yield curve. Um, people are concerned about, uh, or say that the yield curve is. Uh, they're concerned about recession, but you know, it's possible that whatever the yield curve does, we still have recession, even if it doesn't invert. Um, we're at a stage in the business cycle, uh, and this is just how things work. Um, you know, rates start to rise. Um, the stock market does really strong, I mean, it's booming. Um, and then people pull back a little bit. And so it's sort of a, a cycle that we 
see. And so whether or not uh, a yield curve inversion this time precedes a recession, um, it's very likely that we will have a recession at some point just because that's the way the economy Going out on a limb here. works and has worked. I mean, yeah, yeah. T- mark my words. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, this is something that will likely happen anyway. And so in terms of how big a recession is, we don't know. I mean, it hopefully won't be like the 2008 one. But yeah, it's likely that you will see alcohol and consumption increase. It's likely that, you know, you will see a lot of these trickle down factors uh, no matter what. But you might, you might uh, on a bright side, hey, can we end on a bright note? Sure. Uh, you might find some, some really real bargains in, in expensive wines, you know? People selling off their wine cellars at, at any price and, you know, other people swooping in and... Uh, I know that's what you're looking forward to. And buying them up. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, people down-converting from the, 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 great, uh, the great chateaus to Frosty Jack's... Uh, is not a good thing for society, but you know, if you're looking for bargains in the wine world, not so bad. Yeah, you'll. Well, here's the other thing: as long as the recession is still so fresh in our minds, and people are concerned about a recession, that might be a signal that uh, we haven't completely reached that euphoric stage quite yet. Um, what what might? Well, just the fact that people are freaking out about the yield curve and people are freaking out about oh, overvalued stocks. The fact that there is so much worry, um, it might in and of itself be a signal that we're not euphoric quite yet. Yeah, could be. Yeah. Cool. Okay, well, let's move on to my segment. Yeah. Um, so this segment is called What the Frequency? <laughs> I'm so, not in love with the name. I'm just not. You're not loving the name? Okay, well, I... I have, um, well, you came up with it. No, I, I came up with what's the frequency, you know, like sh- a reference to. It. At the last minute, we, uh, which, uh, you know, listen, it's great. <laughs> anyway, so there's something a little strange that's going on at the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So there have been concerns about high-frequency trading in the markets for over a decade now. Um, some say it's good, others say it's bad, um, but we'll leave that debate for Please. another day, another time. But now, right now, it's it's top of mind. Um, high frequency trading is top of mind for the USDA. Of all the things going on in this country, when we have all this meat, Trade. Sto- literally meat stockpiled because, right, because they can't sell it. We're just slaughtering all these animals with nothing to do with it. you know. And, and, and we're now giving subsidies for... All right, all right, no, stay yeah, calm, but stay no, calm. So, like, all these, all these things, um, yep, the USDA is making a change. So, starting next week, they're changing the way they release crop and livestock reports. Oh and I, I thought this was interesting. Okay, so let me explain how it, how it currently works. So, right now, journalists go into a lockup room at 10.30 in the morning. Uh, they get access to the reports, but they have no internet or cell phone access or anything. Um, and they get to write up. So they read through it, they write up their report, and then as soon as 12 p.m. hits, um, they're able to th- release their reports to the public. Right now, many of the media companies um, are able to distribute their reports right at 12 p.m. on the dot, whereas the USDA, it takes them a full two seconds, which is, in, in high-frequency trading lingo, it's an eternity, uh, to upload the report to their website. And so this is where, instead of trying to um, make sure that they release their report and upload it to their website right at noon. They've just decided no more media reports at all. Um, 
So basically, the media won't receive the reports in advance. Now, a lot of high-frequency traders have used the media reports um, to trade on the data because it comes out right at noon. Um, they pay, you know, Bloomberg, Dow Jones, Thomson Reuters for access to these reports. Um, and so right now, what the I have a quote here from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This is actually from the, the U.S. Secretary, Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue. Who Which said, is an incredible name for a secretary. I, I should have been, I should be up on the news enough that I know the Secretary of Agriculture's name, but I did not. And Sonny Perdue, good luck. Is Lord. a fantastic name for an agriculture secretary. Anyway, so Sonny says, quote, Everyone who has interest in the USDA reports should have the same access as anyone else. Modern technology and current trading tactics have made microseconds a factor. The change, their change to um, not having media reports um, access um, or not releasing their information to the media beforehand, this change addresses the head start of a few microseconds that can amount to a market advantage. The new procedures will level the playing field and make the issuance of the reports fair to everyone involved. And this is just totally insane to me. This is where I say... What the frequency? Oh, no, you don't. <laughs> yeah, that's where I say that. <laughs> because, I mean, and it's crazy, because guess what? The headlines of, of news articles that came out said, um, this was from the Wall Street Journal. This was a the headline. They said, U.S. tries to rein in high-speed trading in farm patch. Reining in high-speed trading, this makes no difference. All that's going to happen is that high-speed traders are going to scrape the USDA website uh, for the microsecond that it comes out. Um, it doesn't really change anything at, at all, it, and it doesn't level the playing field. Um, uh, there really was no level playing field to begin with, so this is sort of absurd um, what the USDA is doing. It doesn't doesn't really make sense to me what they're what they're really doing is taking out the middleman um and so right right now hft firms might get away with paying a little bit less because they would have to pay bloomberg and thompson Reuters and dow jones for access to the reports at noon on the dot but now they don't have to pay but they could have accomplished the same thing by releasing their report on their website two seconds earlier rather than blocking the media completely And making it so that maybe there's, you know, media reports are now going to come out 10 to 15 minutes after the report and thereby limiting the widespread distribution of the data. Right. So so I think I I do want to back up, Sunny, a little bit, because the idea that um, these companies are, you know, uh, the companies are effectively selling their access to the highest bidder because it's. If the media is just using it to to write stories and you know be the paper record and be where people find out about information, that is different than if you sell information to the to the highest bidder. And so I think that you know to a certain extent, uh, news organizations have opened themselves up to these countermeasures by doing things that that you know I, I understand but feel a bit you know feel a bit strange to me because because the way that, that works is you know. They'll take this information. They'll input it in in a form that algorithms can easily understand and high and uh, you know quick information oriented traders mm-hmm. will uh, will will you know do with it what they will. So so they'll make the trades ahead of uh, of anyone else. So but but it, it's not even it's not even just ahead of the retail 
investor with whom you know who could never compete with information traders they're like the retail investor is never going to look at the information properly understand it and then go ahead and buy and sell before that information is already in the market but you know among high frequency firms it's sort of like you know why should thomson reuters profit from getting the data first when when they're just selling that information to someone else so and 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 a case where this is really salient is what happened in the university with the University of Michigan's consumer sentiment index where it sold uh, the ind- the data to Thomson Reuters for a million dollars a year and Reuters for a fee of course will let traders look at the sentiment numbers five minutes early and five minutes before it's like officially released so the market would actually move in anticipation of this data which you know I think I think they they reversed the practice after it became public but that's kind of insane. Um, right. And, and right. In, in this in this case, I do think that the, the you know, there is a lot of good that's done when the media is able to properly take in information and and relay it in, in a smart form and, and that, you know, they won't get the numbers wrong and, and so on and so forth. I, I, I actually disagree. I actually disagree with Sonny Purdue less vociferously than I did when we recorded the video version. I'm sort of coming oh. around. Well, I, I think what it comes down to is is I, I agree with you there. Uh, the fact that Bloomberg or whoever else is profiting off of government information um, or reports because they come out by a difference of two seconds, not so great. Um, but to say this is leveling the playing field by um, blocking the media, I, I think that's a little bit of twisting what, what what's actually going on. And, and so in that sense, it's also like they could just delay the media reports by five seconds. And so suddenly then the media reports don't have any advantage over the USDA posting to their website. So there right. are plenty of other ways around this um, that could get rid of that advantage. But to say that the media is completely blocked from going getting this information early so that they can write their reports um, because this will level the playing field is is kind of misleading to me. It, it is it is misleading and and you know uh, this is just a, a classic trap that re- retail investors fall into is that they think they can you know consolidate information and, and trade on it as quickly as anyone else. So you know even if uh, perhaps some some world leader you know sent out a tweet. You know, if a retail investor is going to go and buy or sell something based on that tweet, that's probably not going to going to work out for him or her, or, or do it based on an earnings release or you know anything like that. So it it doesn't level the playing field. But I I don't know. I'm, I'm I I think I think waiting like having letting the media in and giving them five seconds that that seems like the right solution to me. So who knows? Maybe, maybe the pendulum will swing the other way and, and swing back. I, I just wonder what will happen to. Other places where the media gets early access, like uh, the Federal Reserve, which I, I actually, yeah. you, you, I know you have some uh, intel I, I on. To, I don't want to say intel yeah, information to, in this context, but no, no, no. But I, I used to go into the Fed lockups, um, and that was a really serious. I mean, that was like so many hoops that you have to jump through, and so many security measures you have to go through to get into those. Because imagine if information leaked from there, um, and so yeah, that's sort of. Are companies, you know, should the media profit off of that? No, because that that that's at least what I believe is that they shouldn't be able to make money off of public information just by getting it out faster. But yeah, should they have information so that they can consolidate the information and write reports and distribute it widely as soon as the embargo is released? Yes. So it's finding it's finding a balance between that. Right. Cool. There have been uh, this. This is not what we're talking about, but there have been cases, by the way, in which media 
figures or people who are associated with newspapers were nailed for insider trading for, Oof. you know, using information. Like, I think there was a case where, uh, I, I don't want to say the specific column because I'm 99% sure, not 100% sure, but where uh, the printer who was printing this one specific column would use the information, like sell it to other people or make trades himself. And uh, and it, it, interestingly, if the columnist himself made the trades, that probably wouldn't violate insider trading laws because you could trade on your own inside information, but the other person improperly took the information. So anyway, the, uh, the, this inter- this intersection of the law and... Uh, and yeah, media well, insider, kind of insider trading gets at the whole other yeah, rabbit yeah, yeah. hole that we should. It's interesting because I don't know if I'm I'm I don't know if I agree with insider trading laws, but that'll be a discussion for next time. Well, clearly you don't because this is the level level playing field argument. This is the argument that it gives people the false perception of a level playing. Let's definitely have this argument next week. I, I'm sure. I, I'm, okay. Yeah, I'll find a way. Um, but then I think that does it for this week's show. No. Yeah, I think that's it. Do you want to tease all the stuff? Tease all the stuff. Okay, well, we have um, the knock-on effect coming up every Thursday on Real Vision, so you can actually watch and see our beautiful faces and us interacting on video form yeah. um, on realvision.com slash knock-on effect. And we also release uh, a new podcast every Thursday, which you know, by the way, if you are if you enjoy the podcast, if you hate the podcast... Um, let us, let us know We're we're, you know, it's still, uh, even though you think this is the greatest thing that's ever happened in media and we could never improve, we disagree with you. So send us an email, do podcast at realvision.com. You know, you can leave a review, uh, on or, iTunes. Or I if think you have it's good, other but, ideas of topics we should cover, you know, yeah, bring that up as well. Yeah. I think we should, we should do like a, a contest. I think like you should send us an email for your own idea for knock on effect. And if. We actually use it on the show. We'll like give you a a T-shirt. I don't, J- J- James. I think is James on on the. I don't know. I don't know if James is on the call. But I am right here. What, what James? What do you think we should give the folks if they uh, give us an idea for knock on effect? We actually use. Hmm. Besides street credit, the ultimate street cred. Well, we we'll say we'll say your name. That's good. Maybe we'll send them like a. Do we have a visor? Or maybe like a bottle of vodka or whatever props oh my we God. used from that week. Oh, that's such a good idea. Oh, my God. So this is it. If you actually give us the idea, then we will, um, whatever props we buy for that show, we'll send it to you. So so we're going to get a lot of ideas like, you know, weird things going on in the gold market, you know. <laughs> um We'll send you a. We won't send you a bar of gold. How a trade affects the speed of your BMW. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> but but seriously, send us an idea, and we'll we'll, we'll make it worth your while. Podcast at realvision.com. dot um, that, That's good. That's it for the show. Remember to, if you want to learn more from people who are smarter than us, uh, check out a subscription to realvision.com itself. Uh, you can get a four free t- free fourteen day trial at. Uh, that same address, realvision.com slash knock on effect. Also, don't forget our our Macro Insiders promotion, realvision.com slash Macro Insiders 2018. And, uh, 2018. I think I, I want to sell my oven. So if anyone's interested in an oven, make sure to call, <laughs> call me. Anything, All right, that's anything else to sell? I think we got everything. Right, I bye. think we got everything. All right. See you guys next week. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads.
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.